Shalom, it's Carrie Miller. And Barra Lane, your National Young Leadership Cabinet 2021-2022 Impact Chairs. And welcome to the Hebrew Connect Podcast. We are thrilled to bring you an opportunity to get to know our Hevra, who we are and why we give. Hope you enjoy. I like to say that, you know, I read Twitter so you don't have to. I read the news so you don't have to and try to break it down for you in a simple and easy to understand way. Today, I'm honored and privileged to have another episode of Hevray Connect. And on this episode, I have the honor of interviewing Moshe Wanunu. Moshe is a fellow cabinet fourth year, I guess now. Uh, and he we has age quick. Yeah, age quick, exactly. And uh, I'm very excited to, to interview Moshe because he's been doing a lot since we became fellow Hevray. Uh, he has been in the news industry for the last 20 years. Most recently was a executive producer at CBS. And since I have known him, he started his own news media empire, Mo News, which I personally have been, I've had the pleasure of following not just the newsletter, what he does on Instagram, but also the podcast and more to come. So Mo, it is a pleasure to have you. I think a great starting point would be just to learn a little bit uh, about yourself. Zach, it's great to be on. It's great to reconnect. Uh, hopefully, you know, see everyone in person uh, again soon now as we get through this pandemic. My story starts uh, just outside Chicago, uh, born and raised there. My father is actually originally uh, from Marrakesh, Morocco, which explains the last name and the six vowels in it, uh, Wanunu. And my mom uh, grew up uh, Jewish in Chicago. I, I, uh, my dad eventually makes his way to Chicago. I was born and raised there. Uh, was always into journalism and news. Made my way to Washington for college at GW. And then... Pursued a career in TV news, was at Fox News for a number of years, Bloomberg Television, and then nearly 10 years at CBS News. Um, and then in the last couple of years, amid a pandemic and just amid kind of where things are changing in the media landscape, decided to start to build out my my own consulting business and, and my own uh, media and news curation business. Let's talk a little bit more about building your own uh, business and just in news. You know, obviously the the news industry is a very well established empire in terms of you know lots of stations, and you were with a very well established senior station. W- why make the jump to kind of starting your own firm, and what is it exactly that you're building out right now? So one of the things you know you take for granted at these large institutions at ABC, NBC, CBS, uh, Fox, et cetera, is for a long time, people didn't have much of a choice. You know, they only had a a few options out there. And one of the shows that I ran for a couple of years, the CBS Evening News, been on since the late 1940s. Uh, It's on every night, 6.30 Eastern time with commercials, about 20 minutes of news. It was once hosted by people like Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather. Um, And even today, those three shows collectively get about 20 million Americans. We'll watch one of those three shows. Those Americans tend to be in their mid-60s. And what I found during my time at CBS, where I also got a chance to work on the digital side and build out streaming channels for the network, was that I was frustrated by the inability, or I guess the limitations when it came to innovation. 
and getting to people on new platforms. And to a certain extent, you know, the networks have done that. Um, but I just felt like there's a large audience of folks who are getting the news from newsletters and podcasts and social media, etc. And at the same time, trust in media and institutions and organizations is, is a record low and continuing to decrease. And I felt that, you know, it really isn't a time period and the technology has evolved to a certain point where if you want to be a journalist on these new platforms independently, now is the time and there's an opportunity to really kind of break through and connect with audiences on, on new platforms uh, in, in a way that wasn't possible before and in a way that the, the larger, more established uh, networks aren't necessarily doing an incredible job of at this point. Let's talk about what you have built and what it is that you are building, because you're at the beginning of this uh, journey in terms of building it. Can you share a little bit about the platform that you're creating and what the vision is? Sure. So uh, there's a couple things. So I left, uh, actually, uh, this summer marks three years since I left CBS uh, initially, and I still continue to consult for companies and uh, help them with their content strategy and social media strategy. About a year in is is when uh, you know COVID hit and we were all stuck in our homes for a bit. You remember it was going to be two weeks till uh, we brought down the curve, bend bend yeah. the curve, or whatever the phrase was, Zach. Um, reverse the curve. Yeah. Well, that turned out to be more than two weeks, right? As we sit here on Zoom a couple of years later, and so during that time, frustrated by the coverage, I started to curate headlines and watch the Fauci briefings and the Cuomo briefings and and the Trump speeches and try to take in all that information in those first couple of weeks of COVID. And as a journalist, I just, I needed to, it was almost my way of, of dealing, managing the stress of it all, but like, let me curate this. And this is something that I always done in news. And Twitter just seemed like a messy place and it is a messy place. And I was like, Instagram, like my close family and friends on Instagram. So I started to use Instagram stories, which I thought was Interesting because Instagram stories, if you think about it, is one of the last places in social media where you can tell a story chronologically because everything in social media is an algorithm, right? You get fed a random post on Facebook or a random tweet on Twitter, and it's not chronological. Same thing with the Instagram posts. But on Instagram stories, you could literally like you click and then you click and it's next, 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 and, and you can tell stuff in, in order. And I like that in terms of kind of telling a story showing videos, photos, and breaking things down, you know, like, hey, the Wall Street Journal is reporting this, and the New York Times is reporting this, and here's what to really take away from that Trump speech that just aired. And over time, I was initially private and had a couple hundred followers, right, like Instagram. And my wife especially was like, listen, Mosh, like, people really like this, like, go public, like, see how many people, you know, are into this. And again, I kind of view this as a temporary thing, you know, while I, you know, sit indoors and, you know, uh, lice all my groceries, right? And so so start doing it and start to build an audience. And I get to 1,000, 2,000, 4,000, 10,000 people. Are, are, and people are like, I really like this. This is a different way of approaching news. And so initially, again, it was sort of a hobby. Like, you know, I'll go back to consultant and this news thing will have been fun. And, but it grows over time and I start to see strangers and I start to see celebrities following me. And I got, you know, the Jonas Brothers. Joe and Nick are like DMing me like, whoa. Um, and more significantly than that, frankly, was that the, I could see the impact one could have on social media that I, especially early in the pandemic, I'm hearing from like nurses who work at a hospital and they have a shortage of PPE. So they send me a message. So I post their message anonymously. Then another follower is like, listen, I'm a distributor and I have a connection to, you know, a place in China that can get the masks, send me that person's information. And I've, this is something at CBS with millions of viewers I never got to do 
but on the social media platform on Instagram, I was connecting people and feeling like I could have an impact. And later I would see this, by the way, differently in Afghanistan, where I was reporting out the Afghanistan evacuation. I was posting photos of the airport and where the exits were that I was hearing people could enter and exit the airport who were trying to evacuate Afghanistan. And I got Marines in the U.S. following me who are on WhatsApp with their translators in Afghanistan being like, thanks for that map. I got my person through the North Gate. It's like, whoa. And so... I saw that and over the last couple of years built an audience on Instagram, right? And then it was like, I got to get to other platforms. And so this year was really the year of like creating the brand and then building out a newsletter and a podcast so I could, you know, continue to do what I'm doing, which is curate, you know, um, and break down news from around the world and domestically important and sometimes just interesting and sometimes just entertaining um, doing it on Instagram, but doing it on a newsletter and then doing it in podcast form. And so ultimately, I, I like to say that, you know, I read Twitter so you don't have to. I read the news so you don't have to and try to break it down for you in a simple and easy to understand way. What is it that you're doing that you think is different from some of these other platforms that's resonating with people? A couple of things. One, um, I feel that I'm trying to cut through the bias. You know, I try my best to always, you know, when two sides are both being honest, <laughs> Um, present both both sides. I also try to provide context and history that I feel is lacking. I feel that a lot of the headlines in the media, especially when it came to COVID, were like the world is ending, the world is ending, the world is ending. And then you read paragraph 17 and experts like, actually, we, we're not sure if the world is even ending, but like this was an interesting number. And so you're like, wait, people have to read, people don't have time to read until then. So what I'm trying to do is just elevate the context elevate the fairness, try to cut through the kind of most extreme headlines. You know, even most recently, the January 6th committee hearings are happening and someone's being subpoenaed. Well, what does that actually mean? Well, do people actually have to follow a subpoena? Well, technically they don't, right? But they can fight in court, etc. So I think what I'm trying to do is A, provide context, B, try to be as fair as humanly possible. Um, three, uh, you know, bring you that like analysis from the bottom that's buried in the story. and try to bring it to you on the platforms that you're digesting it on, uh, that you prefer and not force you to watch, you know, a whole show and tease you with breaking exclusive. Like, no, this is what's going on guys. And I think the biggest thing, and this is my biggest pet peeve with the media and they need to get better at it is, um, transparency. What don't we know? What do we know? And be open and honest about it. Cause I think that's a frustration people have is that they're presented with certainty that you have to be six feet apart. And then you dig into it, you find out where the six feet apart come from. There's no scientific explanation of it. Or you were told initially, like, you're a conspiracy theorist if you believe anything actually happened in Wuhan. And then you actually dig into it. And the World Health Organization is even like, yeah, something might have gone on in the lab, not purposeful, but like it might have leaked out of the lab. And so I just feel like, and I bring up two COVID examples just because I got started in COVID, but that people want to feel that you're being straight with them. And people also want to feel that, you know, the media is... Um, acknowledges that it's not perfect. And I think that's something that I try to, I try to do. So one of the things on this podcast, you know, we try to interview different people about cabinet members, about how they choose to make an impact and then specifically why they're doing this in the Jewish world. And then a little bit about cabinet. So one area that I know cabinet members were following you and we had Eden Cohn on the podcast previously talking about what she's doing with a wider frame, uh, but also following you, 
I'm curious what you're seeing uh, around media and the Jewish world today and the impact that you're trying to have both in the broader conversation around news, but also around the Jewish world. Yeah, I mean, it's it given my identity and the, and also the issues I've covered uh, through the years, uh, it's, it comes up often, right? Um, whether issues related to the Jewish community, issues related to what's going on between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And so obviously that hit sort of a fever pitch last May, in May 2021, um, as that war began. And what I try to do is apply my understanding of the history and my background. You know, I worked at places like Bloomberg and Fox and CBS, and we did interviews with Netanyahu and, you know, did exclusive coverage from like the embassy opening in Jerusalem. And I covered, you know, issues in Washington and various prime ministers and presidents and whatnot. And so, you know, I try to bring that context to a lot of Americans who you find out feel like they are aware there's a conflict, but they don't understand the background, that they've come into the movie in the middle and no one's explained the beginning. And I think that comes up a lot in relation to issues related to Jews and, you know, Israel. Like, well, you know, we're talking about a story that is several thousand years old and some people understand it through various knowledge of the Bible. Some people understand it through, you know, various news stories or social media posts they might have seen. But how can we break things down in what is a a very complicated situation? Because the tendency oftentimes as Americans is to see stuff through an American lens. Um, You know, one side is a victim, one side is an aggressor. One side is this, one side is that. And you see it through your own lens. And what I sought to do and continue to do is like, well, let me explain the various levels of complexity here. That you have an issue related to um, identity, um, religion, uh, history various military conflicts, a lot of foreign governments and leaders involved in things through the years. And so it's not just as simple as like, look at the map or look at this, that there's a a complexity here. And so that's what I tried to do through uh, my coverage of it. I ended up, um, I think Eden does a very good job with her social media presence as well of breaking things down Um, and just saying like, you might've seen this headline. Here's what's behind the headline. Here's what it actually means. You know, these are complicated subjects. This is what one side is saying or why they're doing what they're doing. And so I see that. And then on the domestic side, you know, it should relate to anti-Semitism, et cetera. You know, we had a record year, unfortunately, from the ADL in 2021 in terms of anti-Semitic attacks. Sometimes it doesn't get as much coverage um, as it deserves by certain outlets. And so I try to ensure that, you know, the audience is aware of these things uh, and that I'm giving fair treatment to, you know, issues affecting all communities, including the Jewish community. So news is 24-7. You are but one person uh, who's very active and sharing a lot of the news that's going on. Why do you spend your time when you're not with your wife, when you're not covering the news, giving back to the Jewish community in particular? Being Jewish is central to who I am. It's always been a part of my identity, culturally, religiously, um, you know, grew up in a house where we had Shabbat dinner every Friday night. And she grew up in a house that was uh, pretty kosher, at least kosher inside the house. There's a lot of like uh, families where the um, the Israelis sort of like, you know, uh, have a more laissez-faire policy where we're kosher in the house. But then outside, my dad's like, oh, you can have the chicken here. We're like, we can have the chicken here. And so um, it's a, you know, uh, I'm joking, but, you know, ultimately, regardless of, you know, growing up, in the suburbs of Chicago, including in a place uh, initially where I was the only Jewish kid in class. 
Um, so I would like find myself in like first or second grade, like explaining Hanukkah to like the rest of the class. And eventually we moved to an area on the North shore that um, had a much larger Jewish population. Ultimately it's, it's my identity. It's who I am. I grew, you know, grew up going to Israel, have family there. And so I found that as an adult, you know, these are important issues. Um, there are important issues impacting our community and that ultimately it's important to me, um, given how important my faith is and how the community was to me growing up to give back. So, you know, among the things I do, like I sit on the board of GW Hillel and ensure that, you know, there's a conducive, there's a great environment for Jews entering campus um, at my alma mater. And that included, you know, working with folks at the UJA, where I found an opportunity to be able to, you know, help Jews domestically, help Jews around the world. And so I, I grew up with my community being important to me. Also, you know, my parents reinforcing the importance of charity in tzedakah. And so that's something that, you know, remains important to me to this day. Let, let's talk a little bit about cabinet and federation in particular. We obviously met through cabinet. For anyone who isn't aware, cabinet has an annual retreat where we come together. There's an international mission and typically a domestic mission. And it's an opportunity for young people from all across North America to come together and talk about what's going on in the Jewish world and the impact that they're trying to make and specifically through Federation. What have you taken away so far from cabinet? Obviously we started during a pandemic, but also what is it that you're still looking to get out of it for anyone who is currently a cabinet member or thinking about cabinet? Yeah. By the way, I appreciate being called a young person, Zach. I just turned 40 last month. Um, <laughs> Happy birthday. Thank you very much. Um, as a young, as a fellow young person in my 40s, I always am trying to find ways to connect with uh, like-minded members of the Jewish community who also want to give back. So as I mentioned, you know, involved in other organizations, was involved here in New York City with UJA in their media group uh, with other folks in, in that sector, you know, trying to ensure there's a, you know, good networking opportunity is an opportunity to give back to the Jewish community through that. So in, you know, pursuing and being a part of cabinet, um, my goal continues to be, you know, connecting uh, with people beyond New York City, um, you know, across the country, who are um, doing great work for their local federations, um, doing interesting work professionally, you know, and so ultimately, it's being able to find folks who are giving back, people are doing interesting things uh, in the world, people who have interesting personal stories. And so, you know, obviously the pandemic sort of paused that for a little bit, at least in person. So looking forward to continuing to do that, uh, both both here and, and on those missions abroad. Speaking about meeting people with different backgrounds, you know, that that was why I started highlighting people and started Hevray Connect as, as the podcast. I think when people think about American Jews, they typically think about Ashkenazi American Jews. So I'm just curious your perspective, having a, a father who is from Morocco and being of Sephardic roots, how that has maybe shaped your Jewish experience, which might be a little bit different than the average Hevray, you know, in cabinet. Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, if anyone has had the good fortune of having good Moroccan Jewish food, couscous, lamb, etc., I begin with our cuisine as our first selling point. And uh, like, and so that, you know, it was how I sort of understood uh, being a Moroccan Jew to begin with was that like, no matter what, every meal has six salads, four entrees, a soup dish, a fish dish, and a whole variety of desserts. 
and your grandmother in in this case my my grandmother um you know who was who was in israel is like watching you eat every single bite and was wondering why the third salad you only had one spoon of and do you hate it and you know does she need to revise what she's cooking in the kitchen and so there's the food experience you know i think the the larger sephardic story is is interesting because you know you have the diaspora for a couple thousand years and you have the European Jewish story, which is a part of me as well. My my mother's parents came from Germany and Poland. But then on my father's side, you had all these Jews who went to places like Yemen and Iraq and Iran and um, Algeria and Tunisia and Morocco. And Morocco is a huge community. And, you know, as I learned more and more about it, and my dad would tell stories. My dad lived there until he was 15. About, you know, you had nearly half a million Moroccan Jews um, at the end of World War II. And they had an interesting story and a unique story among the Sephardic Jews because while many of the Arab countries in 1948 kicked the Jewish community out, the king didn't. Um, in fact, he had, during World War II, prevented the Nazis from accessing most of the Moroccan Jews despite being under French occupation. And there's a long and interesting history there. So I started to get at the history of the Moroccan Jews, which I find fascinating. And then, you know, the Moroccan Jews basically split between Israel, France, and Canada. Um, and you have a very small community here in the U.S., and so um, that's an interesting story. But the larger Sephardic story is that they get, you know, um, to Israel, some because they're literally kicked out of their countries, some like the Moroccans who, you know, eventually get convinced by the Israelis to move and then eventually go just because the conditions weren't so great at various points. And they're facing their own discrimination in Israel from the European Jews, from the Ashkenaz Jews, that, you know, in many cases, the Moroccan Jews were sent to the desert to build cities like Beersheba and Dimona. And so that's an interesting story. And hearing the story of, you know, even racism within Israel against initially the Sephardic Jews and eventually the Ethiopian Jews. And that has been something that like, you know, again, brought my experience and my understanding of what it means to be a Jew and the history of Israel, etc., cetera, um, into an interesting context. And so that's what I like to explain to people, too, is that, you know, it's not just, you know, European white looking Jews. We have Jews from Africa and et cetera. And, they, and then seeing the cultural impact the Sephardic Jews had on Israel and the music and the food, et cetera. Um, it's, it's a fascinating thing. And obviously, there's, the community isn't as large here in North America. There's a large Moroccan community in, in Montreal. Um, and then various, if you walk through Brooklyn, you know, you have the Yemenite Jewish area and the Syrian Jewish area, et cetera. But it's a, it's a fascinating history. And I think it's gradually over time being told more and more but it is um it's it's something that you know i always uh, try to emphasize just because i think especially even in jewish circles telling the story of our people we have such different stories depending on where you come from and and we have a general sense of the european story uh but not as much knowledge especially here in the states of the sephardic story so speaking of tradition one question we always like to ask is if you have a a, a tradition a Jewish tradition that really speaks to you that you do on a, on a regular basis with your family or is particularly meaningful to you? It might make me sound basic, Zach, but I, you know, I, I appreciate a Shabbat like anybody else. Um, that to me was the dinner where we always, every Friday night, always the family was together. You do the blessings. And so that's a tradition that continues to remain important to me. And honestly, my, my wife and I, the time we were dating, we got engaged during COVID. We actually did a um, UJA kind of like uh, couples program 
which was great. Uh, I did it with some fellow cabinet members through COVID. And one of the consistencies that we liked, they gave us a semblance of like, what week is it? What day of the week is it? Uh, during the height of COVID was, was having Shabbat. Before we wrap up, I want to make sure for anyone who's interested in getting involved in what it is you're doing, is looking to have an impact or is looking to speak with you about media or building a company or the various things that you're doing, what's the, the best way for someone to connect, follow, engage with what you're doing? So a couple fronts. Um, there's the effectively during COVID, I sort of launched two LLCs. I got the Mo Digital LLC on the consult on the consulting side. So if folks are looking for their various companies, and I work with everyone from industrials companies to fintech companies to media companies to nonprofits, helping them with their PR strategy, their media strategy, their social media strategy, content, video streaming, etc. I can do, you know, that's that's something happy to engage on. Separately, there's the content side, the Mo News side that I'm putting out on Instagram, newsletter, uh, and podcast. So uh, first and foremost, the most prominent place has been my Instagram feed at Moshe, at M-O-S-H-E-H. Uh, the newsletter is over at monews.bulletin.com. And then if you just search Mo News on your podcasts, you can find that, though I have a link to all of it on the Instagram account. So engage me on Instagram um, and... Uh, I imagine, you know, and then you folks, you can reach out to Zach. He has my, uh, my email and, and text message. Absolutely. And I, I am personally a big follower of Mo. I've been following this whole journey and I was so excited to share it with everyone. I guess before we wrap up, is there anything else that you wanted to leave with everyone? Just that, you know, I think that I live and breathe the news cycle every day and it can seem like it's the end of the world. And I just want folks to know, you know, because like I'll report it out. People are like, oh, this is so depressing and I can't deal with it and everything's ending. And why why should I even bring kids into this world? And all these crazy DMs I get from people. And I just want to say that, you know, one of the things I've been trying to cut through in the media and I just want to remind folks is that like the majority of people are good people. The majority of people are not on the extremes. The majority of people just like want to make a living, um, you know, be ensure that their family is okay. And hope for their government and everything to, you know, uh, come up with solutions. And there's a lot of shades of gray that are not presented out there when it comes to news. And so don't lose hope, I guess, is my message to folks, is that um, depending, regardless of the politics, etc., yes, things seem extreme. Yes, things seem like they couldn't be worse. But that ultimately, there's a lot of good people doing good work. And what I have found through my reporting and through the interviews that I've done is if you believe in an issue, one way or another, and you want to have an impact, you can have an impact. And what I have found on Instagram is like social media can be used for incredibly bad things, but also incredibly good things. And connecting with folks is, is one of them. So that, that's what I would leave folks with. Great. Well, I think that's a, a great ending. And I would just close the podcast with saying that we're fortunate to have all these amazing Hevra that have signed up in cabinet who are all part of this group because they want to make an impact, believe they can make an impact and are making an impact both in the Jewish world and the broader world around us. So as always, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed. Shalom. It's Lindsay Glam And Aaron Carabell. And we are the 2021-2022 co-chairs of National Young Leadership Cabinet. We hope you enjoyed getting to know our Hevra. Stay tuned for our next installment of Hevra Connect. Through the zoom